as Tim mentioned, our church has been going through the life of Abraham, and we've been seeing how we are blessed, like Abraham was blessed. But behind that blessing is God's desire to bless others. God blesses Abraham so that he himself could be a blessing to others. And so we must also think likewise that when we receive the blessings of God, all that God has to offer for us, we must see that that blessing is not meant to stay with us, but it is meant to go out from us. And when we see those two things, that we ask God and we receive God's blessing and we give those blessings to others, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't need much reminding for that first part, getting blessings from God. If you look at our prayers, the things that we desire to be blessed from God, we don't need to be reminded to ask for God's blessing. What we need to be reminded, if you're like me, is to help us to be a blessing to others through God's blessing in our lives. And that second part, I believe, it has to be a characteristic of all Christians. It has to be the defining mark of our church, that we're not only blessed for ourselves, but so that we could be a blessing to others. And we've seen that in Abraham, and we see, and we have seen that God doesn't bless Abraham because he presents himself in such a way that he's worthy to be blessed, as if he has everything figured out. At times, the Bible labels him as this great man of faith, a stellar Christian, but he wasn't always. We see at many times that he actually had many mistakes, many times where his faith was weak. Of course, he had his moments of shining faith, but also moments when he wasn't so stellar, and I hope we can relate to that. That's the kind of person that God puts himself, his life into. Because even though Abraham was like that, we still see throughout these chapters that God still blesses him. And he is blessed. Why? Because it's not about Abraham receiving blessing, but it's about what God is doing through Abraham to the world. It's a very, very important distinction. It's not about us being blessed, but God blessing others through you. That's the point. That's the focus. That's the end goals. But we also see the kind of person Abraham is. And that's our goal this morning. We're going to see a little bit more about this character, Abraham. We're going to see number one that his faith is still weak, that his faith is weak. And I hope we can relate to that because we're going to see our lives at times when our faith is weak. Secondly, in light of that, we're going to see what God does when your faith is weak, what God does. And thirdly, we're going to see what we must see in light of that. So number one, when our faith is weak. Number two, what God does. And finally, in light of that, what we must see. So with that laid out before us, let's ask the Lord for his help. As we study his word. Heavenly Father, we do pray that your word this morning, or not simply some distant story, but Lord, that it will be living, it will be active, it will cut our hearts. Not simply because it is a nice story to hear, but Lord, because it is the very word of God. And we pray that every single person in this room will have a fresh encounter with you only through your Holy Spirit who brings life into our hearts through your very word. That's what we want. That's what we expect. And that's what we know we will receive because you promised so. May that be true for every one of us in Christ's name. Amen. So first, we're going to see what happens when our faith is weak. And if you look in your passage, it's significant that our chapter this morning begins by stating Abram's age 
when God appears to him again, after he does in chapter 15. If you remember a few weeks ago, we studied how God appears to him, makes this covenant with him in chapter 15. And now in chapter 17, our passage this morning, God appears to him again. But right off the bat in verse 1, it states that Abram was 99 years old. And that's important because what we see now is the amount of time that had passed since chapter 15. If you look close and if you do the math, which I did for you, don't worry, it's about 24 years that had passed. 24 years since God first appeared to him and first made this covenant with him in chapter 15. We've seen chapter 16 last week and today chapter 17, 24 years. And in chapter 15, just as a reminder, it was when God, remember, took Abram outside and he showed him the stars and said, your offspring are going to be like these stars. That's how many offspring you're going to have. And if you remember, he cut the animals in half. He walked through them to signify that he himself is going to be the one who, who ratifies and accomplishes this covenant. And it was 24 years since that took place. 24 years since Abram believed when he saw those stars. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, let's take a second to think about what would happen in the span of those 24 years. It's important enough because we see that in the first verse of our chapter, his age, 99, it points to the fact that there was a lot of waiting. And I think you and I can relate what it's like in this time of waiting, this time of silence, not hearing anything from God or seeing the fruition of what he has promised you. 24 years ago, God appeared to Abram, made this covenant with him, walked between these animals, and Abram was asleep, and that's something you don't keep to yourself, right? I mean, if something like that happened, and something like that did happen to Abram, you tell your wife, you tell your family, you tell your whole household, you tell your whole camp, and the story of how God appeared to Abram, that he promised him to be a father of this multitude of offspring, that word gets around. And can you only imagine the expectations that was brewing in his mind and in his heart, and not only Abram, but those around him? You know, one commentator here writes, imagine this, and this probably happened. If you consider where Abram is, he was located in this middle area where a lot of travelers would converge. And you can imagine these travelers and merchants, when they stop by Abram's place, getting water, being replenished, and his servants are serving them, they're probably asking, who is your master? And when they reveal it's Abram, and they're going to say, you know what? I know about this Abram character. I heard that God appeared to him and that he promised him that he was going to be the father of innumerable stars and that he's extremely blessed by God, and they're excited, and they ask the question, how many sons does he have now? Perhaps he goes out and he meets these travelers and they ask him himself, so this great Abram, who's going to be the father of this multitude of offspring, how many kids do you have right now? And he points to one son, Ishmael. And he goes, it's not even the son of my wife, but my servant. Imagine those encounters. Imagine how those travelers walked home after that event. Imagine how Abram walked home with Ishmael. And 24 years of that, again and again, of God being silent and distant and as if he's not responding to his promises, you can imagine what that does to you, right? That's why it says he was 99 years old. God says, I will make my covenant with you. 
But in light of those 24 years of silence and waiting, he appears in chapter 17 and reaffirms and says, Behold, Abram, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Looking at verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations. Kings shall come before you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you, to your offspring after you. I'll give to you and to your offspring after you the land of the sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And as God continues, look at how Abram responds in verse 17. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And here I want us to see two things that Abraham exhibits, because I think those two things are very characteristic of how we respond when there's this long time of waiting, when this long time of God seemingly not showing up, not coming through with his promises. And we see these two things in Abraham. The first thing we see is that you start to live without expectation. You start to be content in what you already have, and you live without expectation after these 24 years, after being disappointed. Abram started to hold a little loosely the full extent of what God had promised him. Do you see, he says, can a child be born to a man who's 100 years old or Sarah who's 90 years old? Because see, in his mind, he already let go of this expectation of another child a child that will come from him and Sarah. And he saw how old he and his wife were, so he shaved off some of God's promises. And he was content with what he had, Ishmael. Now think, it's not as if Abram completely disregarded God. He didn't denounce God. He didn't curse God. He didn't live as if God didn't exist. But at the same time, his faith got a little weak, didn't it? Like the stars? I mean, it was a beautiful night that night. I saw a lot of stars, but I don't know. Those questions start to seep in, and he's shaken. He looks a little different from how he was two chapters ago after he encountered God. Perhaps he doubts the greatness of his promises, not disqualifying the promises altogether. Perhaps he doubts the extent of God's promises or the magnitude with which God is going to come through with his promises. He starts shaving off some of it. And he starts to forget just how incredible that night was, those countless stars. And he starts to ask, was it that amazing? Why? And why does Abraham do that? It's safer that way, isn't it? It's safer to live like that. It's safer not to expect great things from God. And it's safer to narrow your vision of faith and to expect things from God that aren't that miraculous. Things that don't blow you away. Things that you can even make sense of. Why? It's safer. It protects you from being disappointed and being let down, doesn't it? It prevents you from being hurt. It prevents also hope. And it hardens your heart. And if you feel this way about God, feels like you've been waiting 24 years, and perhaps he's revealing himself to you through this passage. If it feels like it's been 24 years, 30, 40, 50 years, or even a few weeks where it seems like God's been very distant, or you feel like you've been very distant from God, and in that distance, you've lost hope. You let go of God 
there's lost hope of him showing up because it's safer to not hope in anything. And you think it protects you, and you think it protects God by not embarrassing him? It hardens your heart. It's safer to not hope in anything, not to expect him to show up and show just how amazing he is. Brothers and sisters, it's also a lot safer to be content with that sin in your life. It's a lot safer to not think that God can really heal your marriage. It's a lot safer to think that the life, with all of its difficulties and struggles, that's all there is to life. It's a lot safer to go through life with that thought. It's a lot safer to assume that God doesn't exist and that he doesn't care enough to be involved in your day-to-day life. And as safe as it is, it is also spiritually deadly. There was an article about this pastor who had been struggling with sexual sin for about 10 years. And he writes this article, and he writes about how he feels like an absolute hypocrite. And then one day he recounts how he was reading a book, this novel. And in that novel, he writes how God gave him such clarity between what is good and what is evil. And he said after he put that book down, he had a fresh wave of a desire for purity in his life like he never known. And what's interesting, he writes this in the article. He says, I cannot tell you why that a prayer that's been prayed for 10 years is answered on the 1,000th request when God had met it with silence for the first 999. He says, I can't tell you why God works like that. I can't tell you why I prayed for this every single time for 999 times, but on the 1,000th one, God came through. I don't know why he does that, but he did. Likewise, perhaps you're waiting. You're waiting for God to show up. You're waiting for God to be real. And I don't know when he might do it, but he will. And it might be on that thousandth time or thousand and five times or ten times, but he will. Because he made a promise that he will be your God. You will be his people. You start to lose expectation. The second thing we see in Abram is that he also starts to put forth his own plans. Do you see what he's trying to do? He loses heart. And so what he tries to do in light of what what he sees is, you know what, I'm going to help you out, God. In light of what he thinks is God's absence, in verse 18, he hears God reaffirm this promise, and he says, no, God, let Ishmael live before you. Let's use him. him. Let him be the child of the covenant. Why? Because Abram being convinced in his own mind that there certainly would not be another child afterward, he tries to execute God's plan on his own by saying, you know what, let's just enact your covenant promises on Ishmael who's already born, who's already 13 years old. He's already almost halfway there. If you think about it, 13, that's when you become a man. I can already start to give my inheritance to him. I can already start to make the arrangements. And we can see, he tries to put forth God's plan. He tries to enact God's covenant plan with his own strength, his own ability, his own resources. And he forgets that wonderful truth that Hudson Taylor, that one missionary, you know what he says? God's work is done in God's way, and he will never lack God's supplies. God's work will be done in God's ways, and he will never lack his supplies. Abraham tries to do it his way, 
with his own resources, with Ishmael. Now, we can't say that Abraham had every excuse to be shaken up in his faith. I mean, he did have the very words of God to trust. He did have that covenant given to him. But perhaps you can understand and sympathize why such doubting and questioning arose in his mind when he put Ishmael forth and said, let him be my heir, God. Why? Because why is Ishmael easier to put forth? Why? Because it requires no faith. Ishmael's present. He's right there in front of Abram's eyes. He's already born. Remember back then, infant mortality rates were high. He already passed that stage. He's 13 years old. He's ready to go. And it's easy to just go and continue God's plan through him because he can see him, he can feel him, he can feel his presence. But to trust and put your heart into something that you cannot see yet on top of that, you see op opposition, you see obstacles, you see how old you are, you see how old Sarah is. Let me help you out, God. What to think? That Ishmael being 13 years old, Abraham at this time, he already saw him take his first steps. He raised him. He put him to bed at night. He disciplined him growing up. He helped him with his homework. And as touching as that is, the fundamental reason why Ishmael is not to be the heir of God's coming is this. Ishmael did not come about by God's promise. That's the fundamental reason. He was not born out of a promise. He was born out of Abram's own doing and Sarah's own doing. That's the fundamental difference. And do you see the difference in our lives? It's not just about the result. It's about how the result came about. Did it come out of God's doing or your own doing? It might look magnificent on the outside, but what matters in God's eyes was it through my promise, through your faith, my ways, my supplies. That is far greater. As one pastor once said, the dangerous thing is not, it's not failing to succeed, but succeeding at the things that don't really matter. That's what's dangerous. We can be succeeding in a lot of things in this life with our own strength and our own ability and resources, but if God is not part of the picture, it is dangerous. What matters to God, it is what is done in faith. Trusting in God to deliver on His promises, not us. Like Abram and likewise for us, why is it so much easier to place our faith in things that we already see and the things that we can calculate with our past experiences and our reasoning? You and I, we too, we find it easier to place our faith in the Ishmaels of our lives, things that we can see and feel, right? The things that don't require faith. We don't need faith to feel secure when we see our bank accounts have these great numbers in them, right? We don't need faith when we get those promotions or when people praise you. Your child gets into that program and does really well at school, which you think reflects just how good of a parent you are. Those kinds of things don't require faith because they are already visible. And it's far easier for us to say, how about this, God? Let's bank on this. And God says, no. Because my plans are greater than your plans and my ways are so much higher than your ways. We can see how Abram's faith is weak. Now, you and I, our time, our faith can be weak. Secondly, what does God do in light of that? We can see what God does by seeing the kind 
of promises he makes, the way that he enters into Abram's life. And here I want us to take a step back. I want us to look at this story from, from, from a macro level, a big picture model. So instead of just looking at our passage, let's look at these past two chapters before with it. So we look and start with chapter 15. We see that's when God first makes the covenant with Abram. You remember showing in the stars, walking between the carcasses, cutting the covenant. Abram was passive. And so you can imagine in that encounter what Abram was like walking away from that, right? His faith was probably skyrocketed. I've seen God work this covenant and promise this covenant in my life. So you can imagine what his faith is like. And then last week, Pastor Bill preached in chapter 16, talking about how after this time of waiting, he wanted to do things with his own ability. He started to scheme and talk with Sarah and said, you know what? Let's give God a little help, a jump start, and let's create a child through Hagar, my servant. And so you can see over that time, Abram's faith, his obedience, his loyalty probably dwindled down a little bit, seeing the results of his mistakes and, and him not trusting in God. Now, here's the question. On here, when does God appear in Abram's life? Is it when Abram's been doing so well at the end of chapter 15, praising God, looking at all the things that I have received, is that when God appears? When does God appear today in chapter 17? When he's at his lowest, after he messed up after he tried to do things his own way, after he's walking away with his faith so weak, present but so weak, and it is that moment God appears in chapter 17 and says, I have not forgotten about you. Right when Abram lost expectation, when he's starting to put forth his own ways of establishing the covenant, it's then when God appears so that again, Abram's faith can be rekindled and grow stronger. And wait till you see what Abram does in chapter 18 and the kind of faith that he displays. Why? Because God intervened. God saw his faith getting weaker and he came into his life and showed him grace again and again. And look at when he comes, when he's at his lowest. And after that, his faith grows stronger. That's what Paul writes in Romans chapter 4. He writes that Abram, he saw his body as good as dead. He considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. But Paul, he also continues to write that Abraham, he didn't go completely in unbelief, but rather he says he grew in his faith. He grew strong in his faith, he says, and he gave glory to God, having been fully convinced. Do you see that? Abraham needed convincing from God as he entered into this life. And what does that mean? He needed another fresh encounter with God, and God does so by his grace, because of his covenant, because of his promise, and his faith grew stronger. And in light of that, Paul writes that famous passage, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Do you see the pattern of how God works? That's what the grace of God is like. He comes when you don't deserve it when you are at your lowest, when you don't expect it and you don't deserve it? Is that not the definition of grace? Is it not something you receive but you don't deserve it? Isn't that what God does in Abraham's life after chapter 16 in his lowest state and time and time again? 
And when he comes, he's saying, Abraham, I have not forgotten about you. And he reaffirms this covenant with him. How is God reaffirming his promises with you this morning? What do you see right now in your life, perhaps even in a small way, where if you place your faith, you see that God behind that is saying, I have not forgotten about you. What does God do in his reaffirmation of his covenant? That's what we're going to look at, the rest of the second point. How does God reaffirm this covenant? The first thing that we can see is that first God, he shakes Abram up. He shakes him up because right in verse 1, when he appears, you know what he says? I am God Almighty. If you look in your Bibles, that word Almighty, A, should be capitalized. Because he's not just describing himself. He's not just giving an adjective. He's giving himself and he's revealing himself as the title. He's saying, I am El Shaddai, the almighty, uncreated, all-powerful, unstoppable one. That's what he's saying. Have you forgotten who I am? It's very reminiscent. If you know the story between Job and God. 31 times in that book, God appears to Job and says, I am El Shaddai. Why? Because he needs to remind Job who he is. And he says things like, where were you when I created this world? Tell me, do you have understanding? Where were you when I put the cornerstone and foundations of heavens and I played the stars in the skies and I told the waters, come to this point, but no farther? I'm El Shaddai. I'm God Almighty. I think personally that would have been enough <laughs> to recalibrate Aram's faith and say, okay, I'm sorry, and just go to chapter 18 after verse 1. But we have 26 more verses of God's grace because God just doesn't show up and show his power. He is gentle, and he walks him through this. And so let's do that together. What does he do? In verse 4, gives him a new name and a new identity. Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I made you the father of a multitude of nations. And what does God do here in chapter 17? He does things that he didn't do in chapter 15. He gives him a new name to reaffirm this covenant, to show that God himself has committed himself to Abraham. If you remember, Abram, Pastor Bill explained that Abram means father of an exalted one. It's singular. But in the Hebrew, when you add that H-A-M to it, it pluralizes it. It's like adding an S. It says father of a multitude, father of many nations. We see in verse 15, God changes Sarai's name to Sarah, which means princess or queen. Why? Because he now promises that kings are going to come forth from her. And why does God change their names? Because to change someone's name means ownership. It means that you have rule and you have claim to whomever you name. Recall back with me Genesis chapter 1. We are made in God's image. Adam is made in God's image. And that's not just talking about in terms of who he is. But it's also talking about what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to image after God in his actions. And what is that? To rule the world to have dominion over it, just like God has dominion over the universe. And one of the ways that Adam can show imaging of God is by what? Naming the animals. 
to show ownership of these animals, to care for them, to cultivate the land. There's ownership involved in naming. And we can see that we know a little bit of this notion of how you name someone, you claim yourself to that person. We name our children when they're born, don't we? It signifies the association that you have with that person that you name. And that's what God is doing. He's putting his claim on Abraham and Sarah saying, you are mine, you will always be mine, and I'm going to attach myself to you forever. That's what he's doing when he's naming him. In culture, we have to understand just how important it is for someone to name you and how much your identity is wrapped up in that. Even in our short history in America and England, that's how names came to be, right? Your last name was Baker. Most likely, your family was a family of bakers. Or if your last name was Smith, your family was a family of blacksmith or carpenter and so forth. How much more back then? And your name leaves a lasting impression on how you view yourself, doesn't it? And as some of you know, I was born in South Korea. And so obviously, my original name was a Korean name. And like I said, the one who names you has his claim on you, right? Therefore, it's likely that the parents who give birth to you names you because they have their claim on you. But for whatever reason in my family, my parents didn't name me, but my sister did. That affected me for the rest of my life. Because my parents gave this list of names and said to my sister, why don't you choose the name? And out of all the names, she chose literally the most feminine name there could have been. So much that if you actually do a Google search of my Korean name, these are the pictures that come up. That's six out of seven women until I get up there. If I become famous, to even it out. And so you can just imagine the kind of childhood I had growing up. Not only in my family would my sister would remind me time to time, I named you, meaning I own you. And furthermore, even at school, growing up, where people would make fun of me because of this feminine name. And every time I went to my sister about it, she had a good reason. She said, she said when I was born, I had pretty eyes. <laughs> and my mom tells me it's because she wanted a younger sister. <laughs> Tim, you might have changed yourself by, not changed yourself, but wore women's clothes. My sister forced me to wear women's clothes because she wanted me to be her younger sister. You can guess how happy I was when my mom gave me a Christian name after we came to the States and after I got my citizenship, Luke, right? But even with that, my mom did it because she wanted me to be a Christian doctor. So you can see how everyone's sins and ulterior motives are just plagued into my life. God puts his claim on Abram and puts his ownership over Abraham. And that's the essence of the covenant, isn't it? You'll be my people, I'll be your God, and your name proves it. And there's no better way to signify God's claim in your life. And you know what's amazing? It's amazing that God, he doesn't just simply replace Abram's name. Like me, I just wanted to get rid of my name, just have a whole new identity together. No, he retains it because I'm going to bring you, I'm going to take you, you along with all your flaws, but I'm going to attach myself to you and extend your name, make it greater. Abraham puts his promise onto it. He puts his name on it. How else does he do, uh, show his grace? We see that now in chapter 17, he escalates his promises. 
You saw that he makes himself El Shaddai. He names Abraham and Sarah. And now he also escalates his covenant promises. Now, let's do a little comparison. If you think, remember back to Genesis chapter 15 when God first made his covenant. And if we look at now, we have to remind, remember, they're not two different promises. They're not two different covenants. It's one and the same. But here, he's reaffirming what he said, but he's also escalating it to a far better uh, and intense way. And what's amazing is he does that when Abram's at his lowest. Why would God do that? If you compare the language between this event and the prior one, you can see that at first in Genesis chapter 15, he promises him that you are going to have offspring like the stars. How does it escalate now? You're going to be the father of a multitude of nations, not just people. Not just people, but kings are going to come from you. When Genesis chapter 15 said, I will give you this land, what does he say now? I will give to you and your offspring this land when forever. It's now eternal. It makes it an everlasting covenant where before Aaron could have thought maybe for a few generations, maybe about 10, 20, or a few hundred years, but no, God really makes clear now this is an eternal covenant that I'm making with you. He changes his name. He also gives the sign of circumcision as a sign of this reality that's going on. You can see that these covenant promises are being escalated when Abram's at his lowest. That's the kind of grace that God exhibits to Abraham the kind of grace that is available for you today. Let's end with this. What must we see? What are we supposed to see in light of all this? And this is our final point, which is more or less an application. And it's the same application that Abraham had, which is that we have to now, we have to see the spiritual realities that are going on. We have to see, we have to consider and think about and ponder and be convinced like Abraham was, and have faith with these spiritual eyes to these deeper spiritual realities that are behind God's intervening grace. Because it's when Abraham finally saw these deeper realities, he saw what God was doing. That's when his faith grew stronger. And that's what allowed him to walk blamelessly before the Lord as he was commanded to do. So what are these spiritual realities that Abraham sees? Well, he sees that this covenant is not just for him. It's not just so that he, Abraham, could be uh, understood as the father of many in the history books. But he starts to see that there's a deeper spiritual reality going on, that God is saving the world through him. He starts to get it. It's not just about me and my progeny. It's about the world. He starts to realize that this is the result of a promise that God made even before Abraham was born in Genesis 3 when he said to Adam and Eve that through you there's going to be a seed, a promise, a child of promise. And that child of promise is the one that's going to stomp over death and sin and conquer evil. And Abraham started to see that he was part of that larger promise. He starts to put himself in God's plan. He saw that the cutting of the carcasses, it wasn't just a right he saw that circumcision, it wasn't just a right that he had to do, but it was pointing forth to a deeper spiritual reality, a one that would be forever, one that pointed to Jesus, God himself, who was going to suffer the way that the animals were cut, that Jesus himself was going to be cut off from his people, cut off from his God, 
And that very Jesus is going to be the result of his seed, the seed of promise. And as he starts to see these deeper spiritual realities, let's see what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2. He saw that in Jesus, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's what it's about. That's what it has always been about. And it took many chapters for Abraham to finally start to see that there's something bigger going on than just me having a child here. And perhaps for us, we need to see that there's something a lot bigger going on than the narrow-sighted things that you're looking at right now. Asking questions like, God, what are you doing? How does this impact the spiritual reality for eternity? It's about Christ. And Abram saw that with faith, weak faith, but grew in faith because God intervened. It's only when you see what God is doing to see that there's more to your suffering than just pain. Perhaps there's hope. Perhaps there's glory. Perhaps there's more to just waiting than just waiting, right? But, but perhaps in that time of waiting, there's a, there's a refining of your love for him of your faith and trust in him. Perhaps you need to see the spiritual reality that every time that you succumb to the desires of this world, time and time again, maybe it's pointing forth to a deeper spiritual reality that you need God, a desire that only heaven can fulfill. And it's only when you see these spiritual realities that you can obey just like Abraham did that very day, today, tomorrow, and you can walk blamelessly. You can see in our passage, as soon as God comes to Abraham, he obeys immediately. It says two times in verse 13 and 17, that very day he circumcised his household. That's how the obedience comes about. You start to see. You start to get it. There's something deeper going on. It's not just about me. It's about God, how he's going to use me for others, how he's going to bring Christ to others. And there's nothing greater than that because it's everlasting, it impacts someone's life far greater than you would have ever imagined. And it gives you this joy, peace, and assurance that you would never have imagined to have gotten for yourself. And I pray those are the spiritual realities that we've learned to see in our life. That we see this pattern of grace. That even after your chapter 16s, where you've messed up and you're at the lowest moments, those are especially the moments God enters your life. And I hope you can see the spiritual realities behind this church and what he's doing what he wants to do through you for others. And as he does, I hope you can see Christ who received the knife of circumcision on that cross so that we could receive the blessings, so that we could be his offspring, so that we could inherit heaven itself for eternity. That's what's real. And I pray that you have the eyes of faith to see these realities so that you can see the realest thing behind them all, Jesus Christ himself. Let's pray. Here at Renewal, after we look into God's word, 
uh, we allow time for you to just personally just to talk to God. Perhaps he's speaking to you through this word this morning. Perhaps he's bringing you back into his presence and saying, I haven't forgotten about you. If it's been a long time since you talked with him, I invite you to do so now. He's here. Let's do that.